0: or good afternoon or good evening. You know, it's becoming more and more relevant to think of us as living on a planetary sphere because right now, as we're entering airtime on the great American southwest of the United States, a half a world away, literally on the other side of the planet, there is a drama playing out. They are attempting now the second rescue of the second set of kids from that Thailand cave where they've been trapped for something like 16 days. Last night, as we were just uh, going off the air, I read a story that came across the wire. And I would please ask our our group here to all kind of pay attention to the news wires, the news feeds, and kind of tell me if something exciting is breaking. Because last night it broke that they were beginning the rescue. And a few hours later, they had been able to extract four of the boys successfully in diving gear with face masks and respirators. And I mean, uh, it, it's just, it's amazing how uh, these kids have have come up to uh, an extraordinary level, given the stress they've been under, the lack of food, underground, no lights, no plumbing, no, you know, bugs everywhere. I mean, it's just astonishing that they were able to get four of them out successfully and whisk them off to the hospital. Well, they're now on the second leg, and sometime during the show, we may get news that more have been successfully rescued. Which, if we do, uh, we will bring it to you. So, if you want to go to the other side of midnight. and click on tonight's graphic for Andrew, for Andrew Collins, the beautiful view of Cygnus that Kenti was able to stretch, make a gorgeous graphic. Anyway, click on that. That will take you to tonight's page for Sunday night, June, June, July eighth. And if you scroll down under my items in Radio with Pictures, you'll see. The boys have been successfully pulled from the cave. That's the first item. The second item is really intriguing, because there is a picture of the little mini submarine that apparently Elon Musk as and engineers have put together and are in the process of flying to Thailand to rescue whoever needs rescuing in that kind of a conveyance. But apparently the first four got out successfully with divers, you know, as buddies uh, swimming all that way. It takes them, something between 9 and 11 hours. Can you imagine being an 11-year-old kid, never having dived before, and have to swim underwater in the dark for 11 hours to get home safely? I mean, that's just astonishing. Um, Now, all of that route is not water. If you look at the side view that we've been seeing on the news, there are sections that are underwater and there are many sections that are above water so they obviously bring them through the water parts and then they walk overland or crawl you know that's why it takes so long cuz you're basically crawling you know through a, through a cave i mean I, I had a a sister my elder sister who had a boyfriend many many years ago who was a spelunker and furthermore he was handicapped he was born without i believe it was his right arm and he loved diving in caves. He loved going underground. I don't know whether he actually dived underground, whether he actually had to wear respirators and tanks and all that. Um, but to me, that's not where I really want to be. So I'm incredibly impressed by the valor and the strength and the capabilities of of, of these guys because they're, they're just uh, phenomenal. I mean, to be hit with this when they're – Having a fun afternoon, they were going into these caves to kind of explore after a a, um, a soccer game. It was you know kind of a practice match, and one of the kids had a birthday. So I'm not quite sure why that's ringing. Okay, we don't want that to do that. No, 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 no. <laughs> oh dear! Whatever can go wrong will go wrong. Um, I'm not quite sure why that came on like that. Anyway, uh, Kinthea, if you can call Robert and tell him it's going to be 2 o'clock, that would be useful. Um, anyway, where was I? So these kids have been under incredible stress for 16-plus days, and the final stress is simply getting out alive because the oxygen in the cave is getting lower. Um, these caves are not impermeable, but the, the uh, exchange rate, particularly if you know a lot of the cavities are blocked by water, is going to be much less than it would be if they were, uh, you know, functioning uh, normally, uh, closer to the entrance or something. Anyway, so we'll maintain a watch on that. And if they get more of them out successfully, we'll let you know. And uh, you might, you know, tell me, someone who's watching the news, you know, in Discord, you can send me a note and it will be relayed to me. And that would be all very well and good. Now, we're going to be switching gears here because I wanted to – talk about a couple things before I bring Andrew on. We have a very interesting situation on Mars. In case you haven't noticed, there is a global dust storm. So if you go to item number three, there is a very famous British amateur astronomer. I mean, these guys are so incredibly high-end and high-level that it almost seems demeaning to call them amateurs. Damien Peach has been worldwide on the net with some stunning imagery of the planets, of the moon, of you know more, shall we say, uh, time-critical celestial events. He has published a um, time-lapse where he fades back and forth on his Twitter account between an image taken of Mars of the dust storms uh, a few days ago and one taken and compiled by Mike Malin from the Mars Global Surveyor mission some years ago. And you can see that basically you can't see anything. Now, this is particularly kind of disappointing because, as you know, if you've been up late and looking toward the east-southeast, Mars is that brilliant flaring orange point of light getting bigger and brighter every night. We will be in opposition on the 27th of this month and closer than we've been for 17 years on the night of the 31st. Unfortunately, for all the amateur astronomers who've been eagerly waiting this once every 17-year closest opposition, you're going to see nothing but dust. And the dust may have a casualty. Um, we, we updated you a few weeks ago, maybe a week or two ago, about the fate of Odyssey, which is one of three U.S. rovers on the surface. Um, one Spirit is defunct. Actually, there are more than three, but the, the ones who are part of the Athena uh, fleet, Spirit and uh, Opportunity. Spirit died a couple of three years ago. Opportunity has been still going strong, except they're powered by solar energy. And if you saw any of the images taken of the sun from the surface from the uh, various Mars missions, you can, you can see you can't see anything. The sun literally is blotted out. And if you have a solar-powered rover, it ain't going to work. So Opportunity is hunkered down in some kind of um, um, you know suspended animation mode. Um, I'm not quite sure what NASA calls it, and they're hoping they will get a call when the rover checks its uh, battery life, battery levels, voltages and all that. And that way it will, quote, see the sun, and it will know from the rising voltages that the the current is flowing into the batteries, and it can call home and let everyone know that it's okay. Well, they've been waiting now a couple weeks, and it hasn't called home because the storm is still raging. I mean – the physics of a dust storm that engulfs an entire planet is something we just don't understand on this planet. But if Musk is successful in sending colonists to Mars, we may get a lot of new news on global dust storms. That could be one of the major impediments. Now, two last items number four and number five. Let's go to number five first. This is 2018, this is the 50th anniversary. Of one of the most remarkable films, I think, of all time. And it turns out I'm not alone. Um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which was written, co written by Arthur Clarke, my old friend, and Stanley Kubrick, both of whom are now gone. Uh, This is the 50th anniversary this year. And there's all kinds of interesting things. There's new versions of the film that have been prepped. So you'll be able to go into theaters and see the original, um, you know, hard copy, actual 70 millimeter film. Not on a cassette, not on a DVD, not at home, but in a big widescreen theater with sound, stereo, etc., etc., the way it was originally seen by those of us that were fortunate enough in 1968 to see it for the first time. Now, it went from being a film that none of the critics understood – is that surprising? – to now it's being acclaimed by a lot of critics as maybe one of the best films of all time. And the thing I find interesting is that it's the only film in a big way that grapples what we're going to be talking about tonight, the origins of humanity, the real origins of humanity. So if you go to link number five, you can click on that. There's actually an interview that uh, Kubrick, before he died, did with, I guess, a Japanese broadcaster, where he actually said in his own words— This is a record record of a a telephone conversation, not a a film interview, but this was on the telephone. And he actually explains the ending of 2001 in his own words. And it'll be kind of interesting if you want to send me a note, you know, either through the website or through my private email, which some of you have, or through the other side of Midnight uh, or Enterprise, um, I'd like to know. How many of you already figured it out before Stanley posthumously explained what the ending really meant? And finally, item number four, we've had a very interesting year since last October when the first interstellar visitor came through the solar system, made a sharp left hand turn and left. Kind of like a lot of people have been talking and thinking and relating to uh, Arthur Clarke's incredibly interesting book, Rendezvous with Rama. I recommend strongly you kind of go out and find Rendezvous with Rama. It's available on Amazon because it's kind of like the storyboard of Amuamua, which is the Hawaiian name that NASA gave this visitor, um, coming in from the dark, the interstellar darkness, and then making this sharp turn around the sun and leaving. Now, what's interesting and what makes this so apropos what we're going to talk about with my guest Andrew in a few minutes is that this now this object has been cataloged has been clocked has been measured as leaving the sun with more energy than it arrived and that's that's not possible at least under normal physics that's not possible and of course, those will be folks who say, oh, well, it shows it's some kind of interstellar vehicle, an arc, some kind of messenger, some kind of, some kind of craft. Or maybe because it's tumbling in three axes, processing like mad, it's demonstrating in the solar system what a friend of mine, Bruce De Palma, demonstrated many, 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 many decades ago with two spinning steel pinballs, one of which he spun up. And, of course, it was processing as it was spinning, the other which was not rotating. And he found in the Earth's gravitational field that the spinning processing ball gained energy and went higher, farther, longer than the ball that was not spinning. So it was a muamua, an interstellar arc, a spaceship, a derelict, because, of course, nobody's heard signals. Or was it, in fact, simply an exemplifier of a physics that we're trying to understand and is the case in broad public view that Newton and relativity, Einstein, are not the last word in objects circling the sun? Now, why is this relevant tonight? Because it came from the direction of Lyra and Cygnus. It came from the direction of the constellation we're going to be talking about at great length with my guest of the evening, Andrew Collins. So without further ado, let me introduce Andrew. Andrew is a historical writer and explorer living in the United Kingdom in a beautiful place called Lee-by-the-Sea or Lee-on-the-Sea. We'll ask about that. He's the author of more than a dozen books. Oh, another one of them. I feel so far behind. That challenge the way we perceive the past. These include From the Ashes of Angels, that was back in 1996, which establishes that the watchers of the Book of Enoch and the Anunnaki of the Sumerian texts are the memory of a shamanic elite that catalyzed the Neolithic revolution in the Near East at the end of the last ice age. Then he wrote Atlantis in the Caribbean in 2016, which pins down the source of Plato's Atlantis to the Caribbean island of Cuba and the Bahamian or Bahaman archipelago. Then there was Tutankhamun, the Exodus Conspiracy, co-authored with Chris Olegive-Herald in 2002. These are not in sequence, you might have gathered. Which reveals the truth behind the discovery of Tutankhamun's famous tomb. And the one we're going to talk about tonight a lot, the Cygnus mystery, which he penned in 2006. Do people pen books anymore? No, they use word processors. Which shows that the constellation of Cygnus has been universally venerated as the place of first creation and the entrance to the sky world since paleolithic times. Oh, and then he wrote uh, Light Quest, that was in 2012, which demonstrates that UFOs are most likely plasma constructs that display sentience, clear intelligence, and interactive qualities. And moreover, these mysterious light forms appear to create multidimensional environments and bubble universes that might well be behind the classic missing time experiences associated with ufo encounters well i could go on and on and he wrote a book about gobekli tepe which we're going to talk about at some length and many others if you want to find out everything just scroll down to the bottom of his page tonight there is his website www.andrewcollins.com and a picture looking very very um not exactly writerish, you know. It's more like Indiana Jones meets uh, Sam Spade. Anyway, Andrew Collins, you're on the other side of midnight.
1: Uh, yes, yeah, thank you for that wonderful introduction, and uh, good to be here. It's uh, five—it's gone five o'clock in the morning, uh, but for some reason, I'm actually feeling quite bouncy, so uh, <laughs> should have a good interview.
0: <laughs> well, that's good. Hey, this is your second time you've been on the show, and what I I wanted to focus on was this whole Cygnus connection because we've now had several interesting anomalies appear in the news and in our conversations here on the other side of midnight involving Cygnus and Lyra, not the least of which, of course, is the discovery by Kepler, the Kepler Space Telescope of Tabby's star. Yeah, And then there is the discussion by my friend um, uh, Chris Knowles that the the great seal of the United States of America is actually a clandestine version of Cygnus and Lyra. And the shield and the eagle and all that is part of an arcane mythology and code which points us in the direction of the place where Oumuamua utterly out of the blue, came from, whisked around the sun, and then disappeared into the darkness. So uh, it just seemed to be time to talk to you about this really remarkable book and the the structures on the ground, the architecture on the ground that was discovered not too too long ago. And I think 1994 was the first real excavation of Gobekli Tepe and the discovery by the archaeologist who did it, whose name escapes me, but you'll remind me. Uh, that it was so much more than just another average Middle Eastern tell. So where do you want to begin with this extraordinary uh, detective story? Uh, Probably at the beginning, I think. Um, Oh, what a neat idea. (laughs) Which, (laughs) (laughs) um,
1: Which could be two things. I could either do it historically and take us back to Paleolithic times, or personally, which takes me back really, to the you know, my own discovery. of, of Yeah, the let's effect. start with
0: you, because I'm always interested, and audiences always like to know, how do those of us that wade into these weird and murky waters, how do we get embroiled in this in the first place? Why do we stop being well, sane, ordinary people who worry about the stock market and our kids and our house payments and all that? And why do we delve into these mysteries that really, in our lifetime, may not have answers? Well, I mean, I'm
1: I think that's that's too long a discussion for me. I, I mean, it started when I was a child and continued on through um, into adulthood. Well, wait,
0: don't vegetarian. don't 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 skip over that. Those are the most interesting things. I I used to ask, you know, guests, you know, when was the first time you looked around and realised that everything you were being taught was not correct?
1: Well, I think th- the answer to that question specifically was probably the age of around eleven. Wow. Um, because prior to that time. Um, all the kids in, on the block were interested in everything from ghosts to UFOs to astral projection, dreams, you know, sensory deprivation, all sorts of things that relate to sort of altered states of consciousness. And this was, I thought, the norm. And it, and it wasn't until I got to uh, high school, um, as you would call it over there, that uh, that I realized that actually, you know, I'm actually on my own, and one or two of my friends might share an interest, but everybody else thinks you're
0: completely weird. Well, well uh, hang on, hang on, uh, hang on. Why why do you think there's that break point? Why is it that as we're growing up, we're interested in everything, and then there's this point where you realize you're kind of on your own, and they're all interested in other stuff? Well, um-
1: I, I think it's just a, a case of growing up, isn't it? I mean, you know, when you get into, you know, high school, you're starting to think about other things, you know, whether it be girls. Whether I was just going to say girls, life, of course, girls, uh, girls, you know, or, you know, the way you look, um, what you've got to learn to, to do something in life. Um, and, you know, mad things, weird things tend to sort of go out the window Um, unless you're a diehard like I was, and I just continued them on. Um, And I started reading books on UFOs, pulp paperbacks, by the likes of Brad Steiger and John Keel and Brinsley Lepre Trench, people like this, Mm. and I just gorged those down, basically. Um, And then the next one in line was Eric Von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods. Of course. Um, And I think that changed everything because he wasn't simply talking about, um, you know, weird UFO experiences or strange things that had happened, but he was actually posing very important questions. Um, and these were, you know, we have all this ancient technology um, in these countries, beautiful stone carvings, um, you know, cultures that had knowledge that they weren't supposed to have, that we only reinvented in mo- modern times. You know, why did they have this? Is it possible that there was either direct or indirect contact, you know, with some kind of extraterrestrial source? And even though I think that quite a lot of the the the, the different themes, subjects he talks about, you know, everything from the Nazca lines in Peru, you know, to the Great Pyramid Stonehenge, the Moai statues of, of East island even though I am firmly believe that they were created by, you know, flesh and blood human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the idea that there's a connection between architecture and cosmology and outer space and some kind of contact with, um, you know, cosmic beings stayed with me. And actually some, became... some
0: kind of information that was not terrestrial that was transmitted to our great, great ancestors.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, I mean... In my early years, I probably thought that it was quite physical, you know, that UFOs came down here and did their thing and left. But Mm -hmm. as you get more mature, you begin to realize that that's probably a little, little bit naive in many ways and that it must be something more subtle. And I developed eventually the idea that quantum entanglement was the answer to a lot of these mysteries that, you know, through the idea that two particles can be, you know, connected no matter how far away they get, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it be either sides of the universe um, and that this connection exists outside of normal space-time, that is it not possible that this allows not just for the act of telepathy but also cross-communication, you know, throughout the actual cosmos as a whole? Oh, my um, God. But that yeah. would
0: mean there's incredible billions and billions and billions of signals. How do you single out one interesting idea to implement well, that, on Earth see, out that of the incredible data the,
1: stream? That's the that's the big question. I mean, obviously there are lots of people on the planet that claim that they channel aliens, uh, and some of them probably do, and some of them, some of them probably don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, 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 you know, who represents you and, and you know, and who is right? Who would you go to to actually – you know, say, right, okay, we want you to send a message to, you know, Cygnus or whatever. Um, Can we trust them to send the correct information? Can we trust them to get the correct reply? And, of course, this is a philosophical debate, which I think could go on for decades, if not (laughs) hundreds of years. But I think the answer that I eventually came to was it's not down to an individual. It's down to patterns. Patterns is the most important thing. Patterns that are recognized um, amongst, you know, different groups of people in different parts of the world. I mean, go back to, let's say, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You know, what was going on there? You were seeing the same patterns and ideas coming up through individuals and cultures, whether they were, you know, urban cultures or whether they were indigenous, all the way around the world. You know, they all came up with the same musical notes. They were all coming up with, you know, this this idea of the devil's tower, like, to, you know, and, and why was that occurring? And it could only have been, if we look at it from a scientific point of view, from something like quantum entanglement, a knowing, a knowing of something so strongly that you have to commit it to reality.
0: Um and that's well wait wait, wait wait hang on hang on hang on because because in that film one of my favorites by the way, the 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 thing that comes out toward the end is that only certain people resonated to this theme. And the implication was they were somehow different, they were special, they were genetically different, they were in other words, the message wasn't for everybody, it was only for that select audience, and they got it and they all wound up a devil's tower or a yeah. lot of them
1: did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, then you have to say to yourself, well, how can we translate that thought into science? And it's obviously something to do with genetics, ancestry, uh, and the abilities that we inherit, you know, through that ancestry. I mean, quite clearly, you know, not everybody's a super-psychic. You know, everybody is a channeler.
0: Yeah, let me ask a couple of questions before yeah. we get into the, the nitty-gritty of that idea, that model. Because there's a couple of other possibilities. Did you ever see? I, I really don't know because I haven't had a chance to, to delve through your incredible writing, and I need to. But do you dismiss the idea that we are not the first? That we're this civilization, this 21st century civilization, is heir to unknown ancestors that have extended back tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years, that were high tech civilizations. And what we're getting is the distillation of their best knowledge, whether it's through physical archives or through some kind of channeling or etheric connection. But in fact, we're not the first. So we're simply borrowing from our great-great-grandmothers on this planet to do these amazing things that appear to be impossible yet to our technology. Like, we can't build the Great Pyramid. There's no way we, 21st century technology, can build the damn Great Pyramid.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm hearing what you're saying. And I think the answer is clearly, yes, that's a possibility. But what I want to talk to you tonight about is, you know, another possibility about how we originally gained technology, uh, not necessarily that, that it was all ours. You know, there is a possibility that some of the knowledge was coming in from outside. But going back to the whole idea of you know this cross communication the you know, the use of, of entanglement you know to convey knowledge and information across vast distances of space
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, i mean it makes sense really because you know what is the nearest star is it what 3 3 light years away 4.3
0: like light years away actually That's slightly that. less because proxima centauri is a little closer than alpha centauri but right. it's well, around it's around 4 light years
1: okay well look that means that if we send a message at the speed of light it takes four years to reach its destination. Now, however we achieve that doesn't matter at the moment, but that, in theory, is mm-hmm. the, the fastest means that we can do it. And that means that even if that message is received, it takes another four years for the return. You know, So if we say hi, somebody else takes another four years to say, yeah, hi back, basically, and quite clearly the universe is going to have – Created some kind of shortcut
0: mechanism. Tell you what, hold and- it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Andrew Collins, not to be confused with Colin Andrews. Both are friends, both have extraordinary research and tales to tell, and we've got Andrew Collins to tell his on the other side of midnight tonight. We shall return. to the first hour of The Other Side of Midnight. Be sure to catch our complete live show every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, for a full three hours of this kind of exploration. And be sure to visit TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com as you listen, so you can follow our special Radio with Pictures guest page simultaneously. But Canthia, our hard-working producer, specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show. Why? Because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique radio pictures feature, please visit TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, Steve's Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the open hailing frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials to a minimum. If you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more perhaps any other show. The best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests, on this very stream every saturday and sunday night at 9 p.m pacific midnight eastern and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows thanks for listening and now back to the show Welcome back on this Sunday night on the other side of midnight. We're keeping an eye out on the news feeds to see what's going on on the other side of the world with those kids being rescued from that labyrinthian cave in Thailand just before the monsoons begin in earnest. And they either have to stay for several months or they drown. I mean, this is not this is not uh, out of town tryouts. This is for real. So. Send a prayer, send good thoughts, keep them in your focus of your field. My guest tonight, back to Andrew Collins, and a most extraordinary idea. So you're kind of thinking that a la that ancient science fiction story about a Dirac transmitter. Remember that one? I think it was Van Vo who wrote science fiction about a Dirac transmitter based on the work of that very famous physicist, Dirac. That there was literally a mechanism to communicate that would allow you to communicate simultaneously with trillions and trillions of receivers spread across the universe. The only problem is you couldn't separate the signals. Every signal would be like a huge, humongous party line and everyone would be talking at once. So figuring out the signal from that data stream would be essentially impossible. Is, is this kind of what you're thinking, that there's this etheric communication system that certain people tap into, regardless of what culture, what era, what time, what planet? And then they then copy these ideas for their own cultures?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, wow. Um, I mean, the way to imagine it is that I don't think it's a case of, you know, individual extraterrestrial sending messages, you know, on a one-off and you picking up you know, something going on in your mind, like picking up a telephone. I don't think it's as simple as that. I, I think that it comes through a system which is beyond time and space. It's on a subatomic level um, and that it's impacting the brain um, on a very subtle level. And I think that it, it, it's not about receiving an individual, you know, message with, you know, hi, my name is Smurgle and I come from the planet Zog. It's not about that. Mm. It's It's about... Directed information, which is picked up on a collective level by a particular um, population—you know, in our case, the human population—and um, as I said, it's a case of recognising patterns, patterns which emerge in different parts of the world um, and at different times.
0: Okay, um, let me get let me get this straight. You just said directed communication, meaning that uh, Orba on Zag. Yeah, is is got a technology that can transmit this information? Yeah, I th- yeah. I there has to be there has to be an intention, and they have to know we exist, and there has to be a targeted audience. Otherwise, it yeah. would be lost in like the directing; it'd be lost in the noise. Well,
1: I I think it's it's more a case of sending out a broadcast, a broadcast with, you know, with incredible, you know, terabytes or gigabytes, whatever it is, of data that's coming out probably constantly you know in other words it's there to be picked up and received at any time you know it's just a case of being on the right frequency to do so in other words it may well be that this information is coming through to us all of the time we are just not recognizing that it's there to be picked
0: Mm. up it could be anywhere not just within our Our minds, but so, so wait, wait, this is interesting because when Sagan talked about the great Encyclopedia Galactica, and he and Morrison at MIT were, you know, tinkering, you know, how you'd send radio, that kind of thing, and you'd tune into this Galactica encyclopedia through old fashioned radio telescopes and all that, you're taking this to a much higher, more sophisticated level in that you're saying that someone has the ability and the intention to broadcast these roadmaps for how to build civilizations to a universe and they're tailored so certain species when they're at the right time and the right place and have the right questions they will pick this up and will internalize it and make these how-to manuals their own
1: yes absolutely yeah but oh. i think that you know what comes with this is What we would call, you know, geometry, mathematics, um, cosmology, you know, where to look for in the sky for answers, Um, and I think it's been going on since Paleolithic times. And I think that this brings us very, very nicely. Well, wait, wait, wait. If if, if
0: you're right, then we've got very, very ancient galactic civilizations, or shall we say, cosmic? Because this would not be limited just to this galaxy. Yeah. Wouldn't it be? Wouldn't it be kind of like a continuous broadcast where any Sentient species, when it gets to a certain level, can tap in and resonate with this information because they'll yep. all have very similar problems to solve, yep. you know, ways to live. In other words, it's it's not just the Paleolithic. This could have been a continuous broadcast since time immemorial. It's just maybe in the Paleolithic we got smart enough or tuned in enough to tune in and pick up the signal. There you go. That's exactly okay. what i All right.
1: That's exactly it. And, you know, it's like, I mean, we, we talked about tabby star and I'm sure you've, you've talked oh, about it. On
0: yes. One of my shows. favorite stars these days.
1: And I mean, you know, just for the, the listener, maybe just a brief introduction. You know, I mean, this star has always been there, obviously, and we've been aware of it.
2: Well,
0: not Um, always. It's an F-type main sequence. It's several billion years old, so it's been there for a very long time. But in terms of humanity, humanity, it's always been Okay,
1: okay. But but, um, now, I mean, in 2015, we noticed that the the Kepler Space Telescope, which had been looking in that direction, in the direction of Cygnus and Lyra, looking for, you know, exoplanets, planets that, that were similar to Earth, Um, had managed to record um, these very strange light um, variations, dips in light, from one of the stars it was looking at. And bear in mind that it was looking at over 150,000 stars. And one of those had dips as
0: much as 20%, which is unheard of
1: for a normal star. Unheard of. Can't happen. You know, and I mean, it was doing something very strange. And obviously... Uh, it attracted the attention of of the astronomers
0: bef- beyond the the Kepler mission, um, and well, the, the actual computers looking for eclipsing you know planets orbiting stars they they threw this out because they weren't programmed for the yeah. incredible anomalous light curve. It Correct. took real human beings, it took real citizen scientists right. like 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 you and me, to look at the light curve and go, "Holy cow! What the heck is going on there?" Yeah,
1: absolutely, and. Um, It was uh, put to one of the astronomers, um, Tabitha Boyajan, to try and sort of work out what the hell was going on. Uh, And she did a paper in 2015 uh, that went online at that time, published the following year. Very cute paper with a very
0: cute title. What was the title? Come on.
1: um, WTF. Um, (laughs) there's the WTF, which obviously has, you know, more than one interpretation, but um, the WTF – in theory, we're supposed to be um, the the where's the flux, the flux. Mm-hmm. In other words, where's the light gone uh, yep. in this star? But you know, I like the fact that it's a, a double entendre as well. At uh, least. You can use it in other ways, which we don't need to go over at the moment. No. But we
2: have a very I mean, high
1: imagination star, audience. And, I mean, this this brought about a lot of focus on this star even before the publication of of, of her particular paper. Uh, and it was another astronomer, uh, Jason Wright of um, Penn State University, who said, "Well, look, you know, we've we've been studying what SETI uh, should be looking for as far as um, communications from other stars, or what uh, we should look for if there is something in the way of the light of the star, some kind of alien megastructure." Uh, some kind of Dyson sphere or Dyson swarm that's actually put in place to extract, draw the energy, the, the, the stellar energy from the star uh, and then re that away for use on some kind of home planet or maybe, you know, spaceship somewhere or whatever. Mm.
2: Uh,
1: and so, of course, this story broke the news in October 2015. Um, And, of course, it it became, uh, you know, a worldwide viral news story overnight. Um, You know, was there an alien megastructure out there in the Cygnus constellation, um, which is where the star is? And, I mean, since that time, an awful lot has happened, Um, some good and some not so good. Um, I mean, the not so good is that the current uh, theory is that it's all just dust causing the... um, yeah, the star to 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 dip its light, and that there's a much longer secular uh, dimming going on that's been recorded in photography. Yeah, you know, talk star. about
0: that because that was the second huge surprise with Tabby. Not only did you have these interruptions in light over a few days or weeks that were dipping down like 20 percent, but you also yeah. had going back over a hundred years. Yeah, yeah, records I mean, that show that Tabby was not behaving. Normal. No, it I
1: mean, it, it was a um uh, an astronomer by the name of Bradley Schaefer. Um and he he thought to himself, well hold on, you know, we have got archival plates showing that area of the sky that were taken in. And, and hang on, day- hang on. For
0: for the digital generation we should, you know, translate plates mean ancient glass photographs on glass plates yeah. that are stored in professional observatories around the world, Harvard and England and Germany and Germany. South Africa and whatever.
1: Yeah, and, um, I mean, there, there was a whole set of these plates. Um, I mean, basically what, what what happened was that from about 1890 onwards, every part of the sky was photographed on a regular basis. Yep. Uh, and this formed an archive, obviously, that, that remains to this day. It's still there. I mean, it is digitized, I believe. Today. But what Bradley Not showed- all
0: of it. They're, they're working on it, but it's a huge, huge collection. And it's oh, not I'm the only sure. observatory yeah. with plates, yeah. you know, photographic archives going back cent- uh, uh, yeah. almost a century.
1: Well, yeah. And well, anyway, he, he he examined the plates that showed the area of sky of Cygnus, um, you know, with obviously Tabistar Star there. Um, and he found that it had been dimming constantly since the. The, the you know the, the the taking of the first plates in around 1890, mm. all the way down through until I think the the 1980s I think was when the last one. So basically, a, a hundred years worth of, of of plates showed that the light was very gradually, you know, a, a few bumps here and there, you know, a few rises and falls, but mm. generally, the light was had been falling over 110 years, it was actually 110, so it's from eighteen
0: ninety. See, the thing I find weird is, for this audience, who's familiar with some of the numbers we talk about, if you look at the averages, the error bars, it turns out that it's dimmed by 19.5% in that 100 years.
1: Okay, okay. I I didn't know that, to be honest, but um, I mean, mean, the the general average is something like 1.5% per year. Um, and you know, obviously, that's cumulative of course. And um, I mean, it continues to do this today. That's the thing. I mean, there are various uh, telescopes, you know, on Earth that are still looking at the star on a virtual daily basis. I mean, you've had Bruce Gary um, on as a, a guest. Now he's got mm-hmm. a observatory in Arizona, uh, and he's taking readings of the star every night. Um, and not just on visible frequencies now, but on multiple frequencies, you know, different wavelengths, um, spectrometry he, he's doing, you know, to try and um, read the frequencies of the star, um, you know, on, on, on different colors, on, on infrared, on visible, on blue and green, et cetera, you know, to, to, to find out whether they all are changing at the same rate or whether there's some variation. And the importance of this is that this, is, this tells us whether what's causing the dips, whether they be the short-term dips or the, the long-term secular dips, is physical, you know, as in a solid occulting object, as they call it, Man. or
0: whether it's nebulous, as in gas or dust. See, or- I'm not so sure that that's exactly what we're seeing. I mean, I, I had this discussion with um, um, Gary uh, Sacco the other night. Oh. Really? His model. Yeah, you know, he was on the show for three hours and he talked oh. about his model and published in the ABSO and yeah. all that. Yeah. The assumption, because they're seeing this disparity between blue light and red light, is that we're looking at fine dust, because fine dust scatters blue light more than red light, right? Yeah. Okay. But that's not the only physical mechanism that can give you a blue light change. Well, of course. No, I know. But but the only model that people are talking about is dust. And the problem is the dust that is being proposed to explain these light curves is so fine, so tiny, that the star, the F-type star, the star slightly brighter and heavier than the sun, middle of its age, you know, main sequence star, normal average star, slightly brighter than our star, it would blow this fine dust out of the whole Tabby Star solar system in a matter of months. And yet it keeps recurring and recurring and that's not possible unless it's being replenished. And then you have to say, well, wait a minute, what weird, bizarre physics mechanism would replenish exactly the kind of fine dust to give you the blue light changes that are being seen? And my proposal is it's not dust at all, it's glass. It's refractive index of glass that shifts red light and blue light, light into a spectrum and it's artificial structures made of glass and nobody has thought of this for some odd reason. Um, well, they're, they're talking about ice crystals, but not glass, certainly. Um, but, yeah, but ice I crystals mean, at that distance would melt. They'd evaporate because uh, well, Bruce, yeah, uh, uh, Gary's model says that this stuff is orbiting about 3 AU. And yeah. if you look at the temperature curves for things at 3 AU, ice will not survive at 3 AU around an F-type star. It'll go away.
1: But they are talking about it being on an incredible
0: elliptical orbit.
1: That's the thing, you know. The, and they reckon that the, you know, the the, the part of the, the the orbit that that swings round furthest away is that mm-hmm. which is within sight,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, between us and Tabby's star. But anyway, look, am um, you know, here's, here's here's where I I see it at the moment. I mean, yes. There is dust there, lots of it, and quite clearly, you know, that's what they are seeing. I mean, whether it's natural or manufactured is, is, is a, a matter of debate. But the bigger question here is what we might call the elephant in the room, you know, and the elephant in the room is the case, is the fact that what is causing the dust, something's causing the dust. Mm-hmm. It's like if I go up into my attic. Again, know, if it's I dust, around, I, don't,
0: I don't think it's dust. It's loads
1: of dust. You, you think it's dust? Okay. Care and quite clearly that's you know that's not the thing that's causing the dust there's something else in the attic causing it and that's me and i think it's the same with tabby star you know quite clearly something is happening either on the star or around the star that's causing it and i think that the the, the more skeptical astronomers at the moment say that oh well it must be comets coming in and breaking up and creating dust and that's what's doing it that that's mm. what they Belief at the moment, mm-hmm. but I think something more than this. I think the star is in trouble, um, and the the, the the star, which, as you said, is, is a an F main sequence star, is shedding its mass in, in a manner which normally only occurs to a um, uh, something like a red, um, you know, a um, uh, red giant.
0: The- a normal star going up the evolutionary curve and turning into a red giant, swelling up, getting cooler. That's what yeah, red giants do. Not, okay, not a red. Okay, star. well, uh, Andrew, if this is true, how come the damn spectrum is absolutely, I mean, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely normal? Well, there's nothing abnormal about that damn spectrum at all. Zero, zero. That's what makes it so fascinating because well, the star looks normal.
1: Mm. I know, I know, but it's doing strange things, things that it shouldn't be doing. Yeah, but you see, you know, if, the if, the, if the
0: strange things were coming from the star, you'd expect abnormal spectra from a star in upheaval, a star going energy changes, a star is going through radiative envelope, reposition, whatever technical term you want to use. This, to me, when I look at the Tabby story, it says the weirdness is in orbit around the star, the star doesn't even know what's going on around it is going on around it. Well, yeah, I'm,
1: I'm not sure about that. I, I, I mean, you know, whatever way you look at it, particularly if you see some kind of, you know, extraterrestrial intelligence involved, um, you know, whether it be mining, um, you know, the dust, whether it be mining occulting objects or whether they be, uh, mining, you know, the actual, um, you know, energy from the star itself, you know, whether it be the the, the hydrogen, helium, or even the, the heavy metals um, of the star, quite clearly there's something happening with the star that shouldn't be happening. And because it, it's a little bit like, you know, our own sun start, suddenly start doing weird things. It shouldn't do it because it's too young. It's just a normal star and it's... Do- and it should not be doing those. That's what's happening with Tabby's star. And obviously the astronomers explain all this by saying, "Oh, well, it's just you know it's just comets coming in from you know the the, the equivalent of their Oort cloud, and they're just coming in, breaking up, they're causing this dust, that some <clears> of the dust <throat> is hanging around, and some of it's
0: being well, there is a little up. there is a little red dwarf star which is close to Tabby in the sky, about 1.95 arc seconds. 195 again, folks. And it's 800 astronomical units away from Tabby. Mm. And at that distance, it could gravitationally perturb a cometary or type cloud of little bergy bits into deep swooping orbits around Tabby. So, yeah, there is the possibility. The problem is our technology is not adequate to really find out yet. We no, need big but, space telescopes to yeah. figure this out. Well,
1: I mean, obviously, you know, the, when the James Webb telescope finally gets launched, then it will see a much prettier picture of, of Tabistar and could help us dramatically. But I think it has been put back to what is it, 2020? Is it? It's
0: now, it, it's, like, it's like fusion. It's always just, you know, around the corner, tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me well, of that line from I, I mean, Alice in Wonderland. You know, no, the, 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 no, the other, the
1: other no, important no, Sorry. Go ahead. No. The other important thing about Tabby's star is that, um, as myself and um, the uh, technical engineer, Rodney Hale, have worked out, and we put, published two papers on this that are up online, is that the dips in light seem to be following certain sequences of mathematical pattern. Yes! And, and quite clearly, this is something that Gary Sacco has also realised, and, and Gary does know about Work. We've had a a certain amount of communication
0: as well, Um, and this was something. Your ears must have been burning because we were talking about your paper just the other night. And the thing is, Andrew, the mathematical patterns you're finding, and that one other author who was on a blog and with an anonymous name and all that. And I hate that because if you if you have a good idea, you should stand with your own name and publish it, not some pseudonym. Two separate groups: your group, you know, you and and, and Hale, yeah. and this other guy, Michael, have both figured out mathematical patterns in the Tabby light curves that are equilateral, i.e., tetrahedral messaging. Yeah, and that is that's impossible unless we're dealing with intelligence. It, Universe yeah, doesn't do this naturally, so mm-hmm. to me, ah. the dust thing is a canard because. People are not being imagined enough to realize that glass, big things made of glass, remember the moon is half glass. So, glass in space is a major construction material, which, by the way, is 20 times stronger than steel. You knew that, right? Glass formed in a vacuum is incredibly high tensile strength. Yep. If, okay. if, if, if you're a bunch of aliens wanting to build something big around a star, you'd build it out of glass for all kinds of reasons. And when you look at it from far away, the glass will refract light. Differently from an salted occultation. It'll give you that blue scattering look, but it's not dust, it's glass. Mm. And somebody somewhere is going to figure out a way to test this idea. And Bruce gary said to me the other night, he says, Well, damn it, why don't you do it? And I said, Well, in my copious spare time, maybe I just will.
1: Oh. Okay. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll be honest. I've not heard that theory before, but I shall certainly discuss it with a few people. Talk talk um, about
0: it with your friend yeah, Mr. Hale, cause yeah, Mr. Hale, because Mr. Hale could do I, the I mathematics yeah. in, in, but, in 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 half an hour and tell me if I'm nuts.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, seriously. Well, yeah. But hold on. It's still nearly, It's still not even six o'clock in the morning here. Let's point <laughs> this out.
0: Um, I would. I, I would but, wait till after nine to call him. Anyway, right. so back we'll to look, back to Tabby, because Tabby, yeah. see, to me. This set of coincidences, which is building, as I said in my opening, we've got Tabby now, something really solid, mysterious in the direction of Cygnus. We've got Amuamua coming, by the way, from the general direction of Tabby. You know, who cares if it was from Biga? Stars move. And in 300,000 years, you know, where would Tabby have been in terms of 300,000 years at the velocity we saw from Amuamua? Reaching from there was tabby in roughly the right direction. I don't know. I haven't done the calculation. Then we've got your work connecting humanity, Homo sapiens, with some incredibly ancient archetypal longing for the direction of Cygnus, and the coincidences are piling up, and I don't like coincidences.
1: Well, exactly. Uh, And there are more, because just this week, um, a neutron star in the constellation of Cygnus that goes under the name of Cygnus X3, which I've written about extensively. Oh my because, God.
0: It's um, doing something? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it does. So, hold it there. Hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. I can't miss this break. Otherwise, Cynthia will kill me. And I don't want to be killed. There's too much interesting stuff coming about. My guest this morning is Andrew Collins. We're talking about Tabby and potential terrestrial connections. Who are we really? What's going on in the direction of Cygnus? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. (laughs) that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, And I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.